Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, September 24th, 2021. I'm John Podhorst, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Noah Rothman is out today with me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Uh, the talk of the town, the talk of uh, the talk of the chattering classes is uh, a uh, immensely long essay in the Washington Post by uh, one of my oldest uh, friends and uh, one-time uh, Washington roommates, uh, Robert Kagan, uh, that says that uh, America's constitutional crisis is already here. And this um, uh, very impressive, very detailed, very thorough argument uh, that Bob makes in the course of this piece uh, lays out what might be called the worst possible case scenario arising from the 2020 refusal of Republicans and conservatives to, uh, of some Republicans and some conservatives, to accept the results of the election and the aftermath of January 6th. I commend this piece to your attention, not because I agree with most of it, because I disagree with a lot of it, including um, its tone, uh, and we'll get into some of this uh, in a minute, but because... Um, it it re- it represents the most sophisticated iteration of the um of the spenglerian view that we crossed uh, a rubicon in 2020 with trump's refusal to accept the results of the election then leading to january 6th from which we cannot really return and that the republican party itself has now become an implicit player in an effort to bring down uh, the um, 200 and what is it now? Two, 230 some odd year uh, American constitutional uh, regime and and, uh, and and replace it with something else by delegitimizing the 2024 election. Uh, whether whether Trump uh, anyway. So that that is basically the. So I, I commend it to your attention uh, because I think that it's worth understanding a kind of um, totalist global view of this general opinion, which has been summed up and gathered and fits the, you know, fits and starts and bits and pieces over the last uh, nine months. But, but Bob really uh, takes it and synthesizes it and, and offers it in its most uh, sophisticated and commanding form. Um, Abe, last year you wrote, a piece for com- much discussed piece for commentary uh, about the nature of the um, uh, great unraveling, uh, as, as as we called it, uh, and how uh, the 1619 project, the riots, the excuse, the, the excusing of. Um, uh, violence uh, and uh, and, co- and and violating COVID restrictions and all of this in the pursuit of this idea that America is an irredeemably corrupt society born in sin. You essentially said the revolution is 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 already here, and here, as you said last night to us, uh, Bob is kind of offering the revolution is already here from from the other perspective. Speaking, by the way, himself as a former Republican official, you know, leading neoconservative stuff like that. Although it should be said in this context that Bob is married to the deputy secretary of state, Toria Newland, 
who works for Biden, but it was herself a longtime foreign service officer and worked for um, uh, both parties in in foreign policy positions uh, since the mid 80s. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. What, you know, I have to admit when I was reading it, it, it struck me um, that there was a certain kind of mirror image aspect to to his piece and, and to what mine was about last year. Particularly as I wrote, um, I sort of started out with this idea that we have underestimated what's, what was happening on the left. And we, 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 were, we were failing to recognize it as a revolution um, because we sort of had the wrong idea about the uprisings and the, the riots and the, and the sort of nature of the online crackdown and the cancellations and all of it. Um, and so, so Bob, you know, I, and this is part of where I agree with his piece, although I, like you, John, I disagree with much of it. I agree with his sort of opening premise that people underestimate the power, the sort of personal power and meaning of Trump on the, on the, on the right and among Trumpians and, and, and sort of, um, the sense of commitment that his, his base has to him and, um, the, the absolute fealty of a certain core, um, that they have toward him and that will, will follow whatever he says, um, you know, uh, through, through any challenge, uh, however horrific and damaging. Um, what, what, part of why, where I disagree with Bob's piece, um, is also sort of brings up a difference between my piece and his, which is that I was talking about things that were actually happening in sort of revolutionary terms. I was talking about where we, there was, there were sort of coast to coast riots and violence and, 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 uh, government sponsored programs having to do with white guilt and, and, uh, white privilege and all sorts of actual policies in, in place. We were, we were actually watching the, 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 um, in real time transformation of the country. Bob's kind of saying, well, last year there was almost a coup, which I don't think is true, actually. And so next election, there could be a coup. Um, so I, I, so in that sense, uh, I, 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 our pieces are different. And, but I also think that that points to the fact that I think he's very speculative based on minimal evidence. Um, I don't think there was almost a coup last year. The, uh, January 6th was a horrific, horrible event. Um, it was a few thousand people one day doing something very damaging. Right. Well, so just to quick, quickly quote from, from the piece at its top, okay? The amateur Stop the Steal efforts of 2020 have given way to an organized nationwide campaign to ensure that Trump and his supporters will have the control over state and local election officials that they lacked in 2020. These Those recalcitrant Republican state officials who effectively saved the country from calamity by refusing to falsely declare fraud or to find more votes for Trump are being systematically removed or hounded from office. Republican legislatures are giving themselves greater control over the election certification process. As of this spring, Republicans have proposed or passed measures in at least 16 states that would shift certain election authorities from the purview of the governor, secretary of state, or other executive branch officers to the legislature. Uh, the stage is thus being set for chaos. Okay. So, um, you know, it's kind of an inarguable point that uh, Trump uh, spent much of his presidency consolidating his control over the Republican Party through fear. 
through a new kind of American political tactic. Like he hounded people from office. He hounded Bob Corker from office. He hounded Jeff Flake from office. He created uh, conditions in which uh, politicians uh, were led to understand that there not only would their refusal to support him be uh, noted and would be attacked, but that he would actively work against them, whether or not they were in his party. And that this uh, was uh, actually turned out to be an extremely efficient tactic that has apparently remained in place, even though Trump lost the election. Now, maybe it's remained in place because uh, enough people believe that Trump didn't lose the election, which is kind of Bob's point, that his sway and control over the parties that say emotional apparatus uh, remains as strong, if not stronger than it was before. And that this also represents a kind of wild change in the American political dynamic because you lose, you lose and you've lost and therefore you've lost Uh, this notion that you lose and that you therefore remain, you know, it's like, if you knock strike me down, I will be stronger than I ever was before. Um, that's, that's new. It's not necessarily new in, in, in other countries, other cultures, other political cultures. It's new in our culture. You lose, you go away. Even if you don't think you lost, you go away. Nixon didn't really think he'd lost the 60 election. He went away, uh, to run and win another day. Right. So there, there, there we are. And he, and he's right that, um, that a lot of this is going on. And on the other hand, where he is wrong and where this is really important is, uh, the news that came out just simultaneously, pretty much with the release of his piece by the Washington Post, that this preposterous effort in Maricopa County, Arizona, to 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 do a recount in Maricopa County, uh, uh, sort of um, engineered by the head of uh, one of the state legislatures in Arizona, and hiring this dubious firm of no particular standing that called itself cyber ninjas to do this over the course of several months, uh, that their three volume audit came out and found with every wish in the world to say that the election was stolen in Maricopa County, that in fact, Trump's vote was overcounted and Biden's was undercounted uh, with a- aggregating several hundred more votes from Biden in Maricopa County than had been the case with the count in Maricopa County. So the effort to re-steal the elect, to steal the election in Maricopa County by people who wanted to steal the election in Maricopa County using whatever techniques as we were hearing during the course of their recount, they could possibly use saying that they were used the wrong kind of Sharpie, you claiming that paper was used that could be manipulated, da 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 all of this. They did it, and they did it, and they did it. They got paid to millions of dollars, and Biden still won, um, which gets to the second point I want to make, Christine, and ask you about, which is, yeah, um, uh, maybe Republicans want to steal the 2024 election or will or Trump will try, and there'll be a constitutional crisis. Um, they looked insane and preposterous while they were trying to do it in 2020. And they are looking more insane and more preposterous, the ones who continue to claim that the election was stolen. 
even though Republicans tell pollsters that, you know, they believe the election was stolen. So maybe the case was made. But uh, Sidney Powell, uh, Lynn Wood, Rudy Giuliani, Mike Lindell, the faces of the Stop the Steal campaign all look like they are schizophrenics. I'm not I'm not joking here. They look like people who need to be institutionalized and given Risperdal. They are they they talk like paranoid schizophrenics. Um they are uh they have slipped all boundary of rationality. Um and there are now in whatever efforts they've been making to to get hard data or whatever, we now have this one thing that happened. So um, they're not good at this. Maybe this effort to get new state election officials and everything and have the state legislatures control things uh, will lead to the creation of much more Machiavellian, much more effective, and much cleverer people to try to steal the election in 2024, assuming that it needs to be stolen by Republicans, which is something else we should get to. Uh, but these guys can't, couldn't shoot straight. They, you know, they they announced a they announced an event at the Four Seasons Hotel that was actually at the Four Seasons Plant Store, you know, in in urban Philadelphia. That's who they are. Um, you could even say this about the January sixth insurrection, which I think deserves to be called an insurrection. They were wandering around a building. They didn't know where they were. Somebody gets shot. There's a guy, you know. There's a guy in horns you know, uh, dr- drinking Cokes out of Nancy Pelosi's fridge. I mean, it wasn't exactly the October revolution going on there. These weren't yeah. hardened revolutionaries uh, who knew what they, they were, were doing. Yeah. <laughs> right. okay. Well, look, I, this is my, my major uh, issue with, with this piece is that I think he's wrong to call this a constitutional crisis uh about to happen. I think what he's describing, and I don't even think he's always describing it honestly and and faithfully, um, is a legitimacy crisis among political leaders. Because look, he, he has this whole section about how, oh, Trump really is different. You know, the cult of personality around him is something we've never seen before, even among populist leaders. That's ridiculous. We had a cult of personality around Barack Obama just most recently, to give one example. There, there are efforts to create cults of personality a lot... Uh, Political leaders do this all the time. This is not new. The idea that, that, you know, big tech was being used in a way that was illegitimate. How do you think Trump learned how to use Facebook advertising to win an election? He learned that from Barack Obama, too. So I, I don't buy into this. Trump is a unique horror. I think he is a particular kind of, of, uh, 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 he's a sort of type that we haven't seen at the highest level of, of our uh, leadership, but that doesn't make him unique in that sense. And the other thing that was annoying was uh, was a little bit of the, I agree with Abe, to call this a, coup, a near coup. It was not a coup. An insurrection, yes. A disorganized shambles, also yes. Something that the country very quickly uh, denounced as such, yes, and that is now legally prosecuting, yes. So I, I actually have a lot more faith in the resilience of our constitution and its system. I have a lot less faith in the in, in political leaders. And and to that point, the legitimacy crisis is something, and and the stop the steal type rhetoric is something that's not. It's a bipartisan opportunity, and we've seen it in little bits and pieces here on the left. You know, Stacey Abrams, 
Hillary Clinton question the results of elections. The, the, the questioning of the legitimacy of an election is not also not new. The scale this time was new. The, the quantity of people who embraced it, encouraged in part by the ease of communication with social media, that is new. The other thing he says, and this is where I think there, that his kind of elite disdain reveals itself in a way that undermines his argument and a lot of what's really interesting and, and thoughtful about his piece, is when he talks about what the kind of people uh, who like Trump, why they like Trump. And he has this paragraph uh, where he says, you know, they see the Republican Party as corrupt and weak, losers, to use Trump's word. They view Trump as strong and defiant, willing to take on the establishment, Democrats, rhinos, liberal media, Antifa, the squad, big tech, Mitch McConnell, Republicans. His charismatic leadership gives them a feeling of purpose and empowerment. And then he basically undermines that by saying... Acting, writing as if those aren't legitimate concerns for people who consider themselves of the right. But they are. All those things he lists actually are, are institutions or businesses or modes of communication that have proven themselves actively hostile to, to those, the people who embrace Trump. So I think he needs to be a little more respectful of the, the appeal of Trump among people and a class of people who are largely older, white, not college educated, living in more rural and less urban areas who voted for him because he, he comes across in, in, in some of this piece as disdainful of those people's needs and interests because they chose Trump rather than looking at it from another angle, which is why was Trump their only option? Like, how did we get to a point where that's all they had on offer? Uh, I've got a couple of other things to object to, one of which is the argument that you see it's happening because... Uh, laws are being changed to change who supervises elections in certain states. That's the democratic process. Laws are changed by state legislatures signed into law by governors. That is the democratic process. There is no solon rule that says that secretaries of state in a state have the power over the elections and, you know, control the elections. Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't, maybe this is a bad thing, maybe it's a good thing, but it is not anti-democratic. They are following the rules of our society and our polity and the constitutions of their own states in altering the laws in this way. That's number one. Potentially making them more accountable rather than less, by the way. Number two. Uh, because you then have, you know, uh, you have elected officials who might actually, I mean, not that the secretary of states in uh, most of these states are, aren't elected, but I'm just saying like, that is part and parcel of the process. The, uh, the simple fact of the matter is that not a vote was changed in the United States as a result of the stop the steal campaign, not a single vote. Or, I mean, yeah, there were some recounts here and there of stuff like that. But um, even in a circumstance that was arguably problematic, there was a question about stuff that happened in Pennsylvania that Samuel Alito, among other people, said the, you know, uh, uh, the elections authorities had gone beyond their writ in allowing certain types of absentee ballots to be counted in certain types of ways. And that was a very significant, I mean, it wasn't nothing. Nothing happened. Now, did it soften the ground for 2024? Yes. Was the ground in 2020 softened by Stacey Abrams in 2018? Yes. 
who started the argument that elections were being stolen? The Democrats in in 2000, after the Supreme Court, halted the recounts in Florida. And in the run-up to the 2020 election, it was the Democrats and liberals who were saying Trump is going to steal this one via the U.S. Postal Service or, or yeah, whatever the, else. And I and it's important just to that to those two points, which I think are crucial. Uh, in his piece, Kagan basically says, you know, he he gives all this credit for constitutional virtue to Al Gore and his team for abiding by the Supreme Court's decision. What he misses is the the culture and tone of challenging the legitimacy of elections that took hold in the elite mainstream media that took hold among the elite liberal Democratic left. That continued. Whether or not whether or not Al Gore said I'm going to be installed in in the Oval Office, it's my spot. They that he doesn't he gets credit individually, but the ideas remained extremely appealing to a to a certain core group on the left. Also, I'm sorry, but that argument is 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 horrific in another sense, which is that if Al Gore had followed the proper procedures dealing with a contested election in Florida, what happened in Florida wouldn't have happened in Florida. That is to say, if he and Bush had agreed that the state should have a statewide recount of its ballots, which is what Bush said, we should have a statewide recount, he wanted selective recounts. He wanted he wanted counts in the counties, first of all, in Palm Beach Gordon, County. Where Gore wanted selective. Yeah. Gore wanted selective recounts, for which there is no precedent in American political history. He took a bet. He made a bet that because of the butterfly ballot, uh, he could get back sufficient number. And that's all he wanted. And that was their choice. And they created, there was a procedure and process. Now, four times the statewide ballots were recounted uh, by, uh, by voting consortia, by the way, in 2001 and 2002. And Bush won them every time. So um, had there been a statewide recount that Bush could not have contested or complained about as he was for one and Gore had agreed to it, there would have been one. It would have taken three weeks and Bush would have been declared the winner, almost certainly. And this, oh, it's so noble for Al Gore to have, you know, to have um, acceded to the Supreme Court's ruling. Well, what the hell else was he going to do? And what, but what the hell else would Trump have done? I mean, it, it's all ridiculous. Like there is no, there is no modality. Like what respect was Gore due because he realized that the sun had set on his um, preposterous effort to create carve out rules because a ballot was badly designed in a single county out of the 3,309 counties in the United States. That was the beginning of this. And it only happened, by the way, because the Cold War was over. Let me put it this way, just very quickly. Like, uh, It's probably the case that Kennedy or the Democrats stole the electoral votes in Illinois through a engineered count in Cook County in 1960. We don't really know, but let's say there's a, you know, it's 50-50 or something like that. Nixon could not bring himself to enter into the constitutional crisis moment or contested election moment 
because he was too worried about the Russians because he was too worried about the Cold War because it would not have been he would have been considered somebody who was threatening our national um, consensus on things and putting us in a crisis when we did not have the uh, luxury to be in that kind of crisis. Cold War ends. We are the unipower, you know, the, the, we are the, the, you know, unipolar power in the world. The 2000 election happens and there is no worldwide world looming crisis over stuff like that. And so Gore had the freedom to do this in a weird way, though we know that's not really the case. Trump did too. I mean, um, had, had there, I mean, although you would think the coronavirus, whatever, had there been, had there been a sort of serious matter of national contest uh, outside our country in which we were, you know, engaged in a life or death struggle, he couldn't wander around and play these games. There, well, the, and there's another thing I think to that point, this, what the, what's the, what's the point of writing this piece now to sort of, you know, w- claim that we're going to be spiraling into constitutional crisis in a few years. And I think he gives the game away a little bit at the end by not talking about those kinds of, you know, important, serious global issues. Instead, he says in, in towards the end of the piece, he says, you know, Romney and all these other good Republicans should form a kind of constitutional Republicans group. And they're going to help. They're going to work with Democrats to prevent this kind of constitutional emergency. And and they're, you know, they're going to they're, they're going to totally just focus on constitutions and election integrity. But then he says, or and this, I think, gives the game away. They might strive for temporary governing consensus on a host of critical issues. What's the first one he lists? Government spending, defense, immigration, COVID-19. So in a weird way, I, I got to that point in the piece and I thought, oh, what he's trying to do is constitution shame Republicans who are skeptical of Trump into buying into Biden's spending plan and the Democrats kind of attempts to remake society. And I didn't like that because I don't agree with, with that proposal, but it's pretty clear he does. Okay, I want to get to this in in greater detail, but before I do that, I got to talk to you about our friends at the Bonson Group. Uh, this week, we had the wild gyrations in the stock market. We're down six hundred points on Monday. We're up five hundred points yesterday. Um, all relating to, uh, in part, the potential uh, crisis of a of the collapse of a Chinese uh, real estate kind of uh, venture capital company. Um, uh, it can happen here. Stuff is going on. We got we got uh, all of these weird. Uh, uh, we got this weird political dynamic where we're either going to be spending four and four trillion dollars or four and a half trillion dollars more uh, than we ever have before, or we're going to spend nothing. All of this means you got to go and subscribe to David Bonson's two newsletters: the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com. He is a he runs a three billion dollar financial management and services firm. And he is looking at the interplay of politics, policy, uh, the Fed, which, of course, also made a big announcement this week about tapering off its um, QE forever program. Uh, You need to understand it. You need to know what's going on. DCToday.com. Go to DividendCafe.com to to subscribe to both these newsletters from the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Uh, Abe, um, before Go. before we get into um, why this piece came out now and what its real purpose is uh, regarding uh, Biden and the, the job he's doing, I just want to add one more point about uh, the sort of general argument. I think there what, where there is, I think, a, a frighteningly real threat 
is that there could be some sort of large scale crisis around the next election. Um, it would be a sort of civil crisis or something. I mean, uh, let's say Trump runs, let's say Trump loses. There will be thousands of Americans who will think, or millions, or who know, who think that the the election was stolen. That is a huge problem. Um, but Kagan's talking about the guardrails, and uh, you know, as as was the case this last time around, the guardrails held, and the, and and they will hold. What we do about the 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 chances of there being some sort of <clears throat> completely reckless, debilitating protest and violence, uh, that's a different matter. Well, you know, and you could see it in reverse also. I mean, I don't want to do what I don't want to I don't want to play whataboutism or, you know, both sidesism or anything like that. But um, the argument that is being made for this um, uh, unprecedented effort by Democrats to interfere at the national level in state and local election rules and stuff like that is a bill that will almost certainly fail or bills or whatever that will almost certainly fail unless something weird happens between now and November 2022 or 2024 um, is to create the conditions under which they can say the Republicans stole the election because they changed the rules here. They changed the rules there and they did this and they did that and they did the other thing and blah, 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 blah. Uh, because certain rules were put in place because of a pandemic to expand out um, uh, how people could vote and in what ways they could vote and all of that. Since since it was uh, there was no vaccine, it was unsafe for people to go out and around. And they want to enshrine those uh, in a way because they believe that those um, measures and methodologies favor their electorate. Not sure they do, by the way, because. Uh, as I often say about these voting rules on this podcast, um, once they become enshrined and people understand how they're used by one party or the other, the advantage can be eliminated. That's what happened in California with its uh, uh, ballot harvesting system, which Republicans didn't understand in 2018 and Democrats did. And Democrats took all of these House seats away from Republicans using ballot harvesting techniques. Well, the Republicans turned around in 2020 and adopted the same techniques and took five of those seats back um, because, uh, you know, like Daffy Duck blowing himself up uh, to get the applause in the Bugs Bunny cartoon, you can only do it once. Like, you can, you only get the trick only works once. That's also what Trump proved, by the way, with the stuff that uh, Christine is talking about with social media and Facebook and everything, which is Obama used it. Well, guess what? You only get to use it once. Like then the Republicans also know that you can do this and aggregate things and do things too. And for some reason, Hillary and her unbelievably incompetent campaign didn't know how to harness the very things that had helped Obama so so fantastically in 2012. That wasn't Trump's fault or Trump's doing. It was a weird thing that happened. Anyway, so we do have a case in which we have a potential Republican crisis of legitimacy with millions of people thinking that the 2024 election is stolen if Trump does, runs again and doesn't win. And simultaneously, you're going to have a, a majority of the Democratic Party believing that Trump stole the 2024 election. And that's where we get into the legitimacy crisis, not the constitutional crisis. And let me add, that was a very real feeling in a lot of places in this country. What The second part of that, uh, in, in the last election, Washington, D.C. boarded up its downtown right before the election 
Not why? Because if Trump had won re-election, they knew there was going to be rioting and unrest to uh, to oppose Trump's re-election. In fact, that was that was basically what leaders in this city were saying, and everybody knew it to be the case. So again, like the the, the threat of that is is real as well. I don't think it has as many people and adherents, and it's not a movement in the same way that the the version on the right is. But it it certainly exists. Okay, I want to bring this up and maybe compare it a little bit to COVID. Again, I I don't know why I'm comparing it to COVID, except that COVID, uh, the COVID vaccination numbers represent one of the few things that we can look at that show how the American people are acting in concert, as well as elections. Except in, in this case, you really have a baseline of 270-odd million people and in elections, only, you know, half or whatever, 60% of those eligible actually participate. And so you don't actually know what's going on with the other 40. But here we have, you know, basically 270 million people can get the vaccine or something like that. Where where are they and how is it going? So there are two ways of looking at this. One of which is, as we said, as I said yesterday, three quarters of Americans have been vaccinated now over the age of 12. Three quarters of Americans have been vaccinated over the age of 12. Uh, that number will hit 80 to 85% in a month. Simultaneously, uh, if you look at the uh, COVID numbers uh, right now, the Delta wave has peaked and is now on its way down, uh, inarguably. Uh, Look at a 90-day chart. You can actually see it visibly in the charts of cases and hospitalizations. Deaths, tragically, are the lagging indicator here because people who are getting hospitalized got hospitalized three weeks ago, s- some of them are dying. And so the death numbers are, are remain you know, over 2,000, and that's horrible. However, hospitalizations are down 12%, cases are down 14%. Uh, this is a steady decline. This is, as David Leonhardt says in the New York Times, this is the two-month uh, story of, of, uh, of, of COVID, like these spikes that last two months and then seem to burn themselves out. And unless a new variant arrives... Uh, between, you know, that we haven't seen or is already working its way, which I I sort of doubt because there's so much information coming in from these hospitalizations and things. I think we would know if it had already mutated. Um, Enough people are going to be vaccinated by the, you know, by by Thanksgiving and have natural immunity and all of this that we really will see COVID over. However, there are 20% or something like that of the country that will never get vaccinated. And they believe all kinds of insane, crazy, preposterous things like it's better to take ivermectin than to than to than to get the vaccine, stuff like that. There's no as as Abe keeps saying. There's no arguing with them. There's some point at which we're we're beyond. It's over with. You know, you can't argue with them anymore. And that's twenty percent of the country. So on the one hand, it's twenty percent of the country. That's a huge number of people. On the other hand, four fifths of the country is acting. You know, will will have done the thing that will save them and save the country from COVID. And similarly, in twenty twenty four, chances are eighty to eighty five percent of the country will accept the results of the election. The question is, what does it mean if twenty percent of the country doesn't accept the results of an election in the first period in which? Let's say they never would. Let's say they never would have. But nobody cared. It meant nothing. They well, had no could. they had no public face. They had no organizational methodology. You can say Nixon stole the election, Reagan stole the everybody stole the election, but then you just sat at home and raged. Uh you didn't have uh, uh Facebook and Reddit and Twitter whatever to gather you together to create a a, a counterforce. A well, tiny minority counterforce, but nonetheless, that's a lot of people. 
Well, we also have the ability now at a very granular level to quantify how many people that includes, particularly with vaccination, obviously. Um, and the ability to do that means that it's compliance, our, our tolerance for some people never complying uh, constantly goes down because now we can identify them. We can yell at them. We can we can publicly shame them in a way that we couldn't uh, previously. And that empowers the people who do the right thing, particularly if you're an elite decision maker, to really, you know, point, come down hard on those folks, unless they're in your political coalition, in which case you pretend like it's really a different problem. We don't really talk about it much, even though it's clear to everyone else on the ground. But the ability to quantify the holdouts is has really transformed how politically and culturally we deal with these types of situations, whether it's vaccination or, or acceptance of an election result. Um, it, it's a great power we have uh, to quantify these sorts of things, and it helps us do a lot of good. But this is the sort of flip side of it as well. And 100% compliance really is kind of what the technocratic elite wants for a lot of its policies, right? I mean, that's that's the goal. That was the whole nudge thing, right? You know, you can't just make public health policies. You have to actually get into people's lives and steal the cheeseburger out of their hands. I mean, in some sense, John, your point, I mean, it really is that the sort of the story of the 21st century is is this this new ability of minority groups to wield this outsized power and, and disrupt the workings of the country. Um, whether it's has to do with um, sort of political ideology or the vaccine conspiracy theories. And the thing is, there's no reversing the technology that has enabled this, right? So there's there's got to be a way to sort of begin to approach this and handle this going forward. Cause we are, this is with us for ever, you know, there's unless, well, look, unless the internet is outlawed. Look, that is a, this is a, this is a, a key point in the course of representative democracy from the 18th century onward, right? Which is the expansion of um, uh, communications over time. And uh, I'm not saying that, you know, the telegraph, I mean, I, you know, uh, our, our friend John Seal Gordon wrote a great book called An Empire of Wealth, which is sort of economic history of the United States. And one of the points of the story is, of course, that the political system is always lagging innovation and struggling to figure out how on earth uh, it, 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 it takes innovation in or, 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 or is it sort of Luddite and does whatever it can to sort of prevent it from because they don't understand it the great the best story uh, in that book being the the intellectual incapacity of andrew jackson to understand what currency was that a piece of paper could stand in for a chicken and he just couldn't do it like it was you it, he couldn't it, it was beyond his capacity to move outside of a barter or literal exchange of goods for services economic model to understand this. And, you know, he had great success, as, political success in part, as a result of representing all kinds of people who also couldn't understand the fact that we had moved into a more symbolic financial system. Uh, but it was unavoidable over time, you know, and here we are with social media. I have no answer to your question. You have no answer to the question. Uh, no, but the, but just the more I think about the problem, the, the, the frightening thing, I think, is that um, 
you know, conservatives often rightly point out the difference between uh, that point out that we are not actually a democracy, but we are a democratic republic um, and that we don't have everyone doesn't always get a vote on everything all the time. We have representative leaders who are empowered to make certain decisions for us. Um, what social media does is kind of turn us into a pure democracy. Um, it kind of undoes that. And that's why you have people like Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, who um, is uh, an elected official in our Democratic Republic, spending more time doing her work in the pure democracy of social media land. Um, she's working with that technology. Well, and in, in, in terms of solving this problem, the, the tech companies themselves have tried to delay even acknowledging it, right? For years, it was like, not our problem. We're just a platform. It's, we're not doing anything to cause to exacerbate this situation. Now that they've acknowledged there is a problem, the fix that they have embraced, uh, as we saw recently, was just total bans on things, right? Just, just really cut them all out. That obviously doesn't work. And for all the reasons I think Abe pointed out the other day, it actually can have a counterintuitive effect of, of giving people like Trump a, a bigger platform by taking him off it for a while when he, if he decides to come back. And those companies will have a really hard time banning him if he's a, if he's a declared presidential candidate. But I do think there are actual technical fixes that could be made by the tech companies to try to at least bring down the temperature. Whether they have a financial incentive to make them is a totally different issue. And they answer not to democracy, not to the American people. They answer to their shareholders, their company. So, um, so guys, uh, let's let let's talk about uh, this is an uncomfortable conversation. So let's talk about your comfort. Okay, look, if you've ever been behind the wheel of a high performance sports car and you realize how much better a car can be, you never want to settle for a regular car again. I feel exactly the same way about my X chair. You guys aren't on a Zoom with us, but Abe and Christina, are they can see I'm right now sitting in an X chair. And from the moment I first sat down in it, I understood why many consider X chair to be the finest office chair in the world. Can your current office chair give you a massage while you're working? My X chair can. Can your current office chair heat up or cool down? My X chair can. It's all in the LMAX massage and temperature regulation, exclusively designed and made for X chair. And once you feel the customized support of X chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar DVL, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. Take my advice. Try X chair for yourself risk-free for 30 days. Once you realize how much better your chair could be and should be, you'll never go back. I promise. Go back. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, C-O-M-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y.com for $100 off your order. X chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort. xchaircommentary.com. Um, speaking of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, there was this scene yesterday where she was weeping on the House floor uh, because the squad's bluff was called. Uh, Tuesday, uh, as as the uh, budgetary resolution was being discussed to keep the government open, and w- there was a provision in it to fund uh, re- to to restock Israel's Iron Dome anti missile system uh, for a billion dollars, and the squad raised objections to it. It was removed, and there was a gigantic kerfuffle. And uh, two days later, Steny Hoyer and Nancy Pelosi essentially put a standalone bill on the floor of the house saying let's spend a billion dollars to replenish iron dome and it passes 420 to nine 
Uh, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez votes present instead of no, votes present, and then dissolves into sobs in the arms of Ayanna Presley. I'm thinking. I can't remember who. Anyway, she dissolves into sobs. Um what 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 the what the what the hell? You you know I'm cynical about her, so I'll say she did it for the insta. Like she, you know, that that that's her brand. Her brand is to perform her political feelings and also to weaponize emotions against any political opponents. If there's an issue that she cannot actually argue her case for, it she'll she'll it's many people, but why she voted present right That's after right, all of this, you know, back and forth about how this is so terrible. And, you know, with other representatives like Rashida Tlaib, basically, again, bordering on anti-Semitic ranting on the House floor, uh, they voted no. So, it, you know, whatever game she's playing, it, it's nonsensical. But the emotional outburst was pure performative social media catnip. I kind of think she was crushed. I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I think she... You're not as cynical about her as I am. I am. I am. I just, but I just, I think that, you know, I think she's got some, some sort of delusional aspirations. Um, and I, and I think she does sort of function as if this is a pure democracy. So when the machinery of, of Republicanism sort of, you know, dashes her hopes, I think it's, I think it's a crushing blow. I don't, but I don't understand the voting present at all. I mean, she could have voted however she wanted to vote. I mean, it, it, it almost has a weird quality as follows. Somebody called her on the phone and said, uh, we're going to raise $10 million to have somebody primary you uh, next year. Don't vote yes on this or something. I don't know. I mean, the, that's the only thing I can come up with. The only thing I can come up with. Uh, but, of course, had somebody done that, she could have then come out and said, they've said they're going to spend $10 million against me. I'm going to vote no on that. Whatever. I don't understand it. It's very hard to understand what what, what on earth uh, went on there. But um, uh, this uh, re- represents um, uh, a kind of real pullback from the abyss for the Democratic Party. I mean, I have to say that uh, Tuesday afternoon when that happened, and you heard me do the whole rant on this show on Wednesday, I think, in which I said, well, you know, the Democratic Party has now fulfilled the promise that it started making with Obama, the beginning of Obama's presidency, uh, and this turn away from Israel um, to a point at which this um, uh, in entirely understandable uh, idea of helping to fund Iron Dome to prevent wider war in the Middle East, in which we would end up necessarily getting involved in a way that was detrimental to our interests, um, uh, in a complicated way. Um, that that uh, that they 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 were like, uh, we're not we're not sliding, we're not going to slide down into this abyss without a fight or we're, you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to put a halt to this. We're going to do what we can to put a halt to this. Cause there's no excuse for this. Uh, the grownups like took charge, uh, for once and, um, did what they did. Uh, and so I, I mean, that was sort of an interesting, um, an interesting development and one that, you know, you, you, you got it, you got to take note of. I don't, I, if, if the squad is the is the future of the Democratic Party, then this is a this was a way station or you know an important 
uh, pause. A, a block pause, but uh, but but it, it nonetheless it did happen, and we should make note of the fact that it happened. Uh, something else uh, that happens is um, Moink, our friends at Moink Box. They deliver grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken and wild-caught Alaskan salmon direct to your door, helping family farms become financially independent outside of big agriculture. Moink's animals raised outdoors, their fish swim wild in the ocean, and Moink meat is free of antibiotics, hormones, sugar, and all the other junk you find prepackaged in the meat aisle. Sign up at moinkbox.com commentary to get a year of bacon for free, and then pick what meats you want delivered with your first box. Change what you get each month and cancel any time. Moink, founded by an eighth-generation farmer who was featured on Shark Tank, host Kevin O'Leary said it's the best bacon he'd ever tasted. And Jamie Siminoff, creator of the Ring Video Doorbell, invested in Moink. Join the Moink movement today. Go to moinkbox.com slash commentary right now, and listeners to the show get free bacon for a year. That's one year of the best bacon you'll ever taste, but for a limited time, spelled M-O-I-N-K, box.com slash commentary. That's moinkbox.com slash commentary. Um, so the chaos in the house continues apace. Nobody knows what's happening. Nobody knows what's going on. Monday is the day that the vote is scheduled on the hard infrastructure bill as promised when the bill was first voted on. And it's going to be interesting to see what, to see what happens here. Um, uh, I don't really have much to add uh except to say that um you know uh there's going to be a weekend of news uh and we're not going to know very much what to what to make of it um can i talk about the horses for a minute yes because <laughs> i'm slightly obsessed with the border yes. horses um yes. the border horses need their own lifetime television movie this is my new theory but um News just came out recent, more recently when Biden was directly asked by a reporter what he thought about the images, which were wrongfully circulated with the wrongful gloss that they showed a, a Border Patrol agent using a whip. Even now, the photographer who the photographers who took those pictures have stated on the record, we did not see anyone using a whip. Nevertheless, it, it led to this, you know, social media left Twitter spiral, which led to Jen Psaki yesterday, the day before, saying, we're getting rid of all the horses. The horses are terrible. Oh, the image, the, the it just looks bad. We're getting rid of the horses, which of course is a huge blow to the ability of these uh, border patrol officers to do their jobs. However, Biden was asked uh, about the images and he said, quote, I promise you those people will pay. There will be consequences. It's an embarrassment, but beyond an embarrassment it's dangerous. It's wrong. This is the president who has yet to do anything about the deaths of civilians, children in Afghanistan because of a wrong, wrongful drone strike. Nobody was punished for that. Yet a false media-fueled Twitter storm about Border Patrol agents who were dealing with a crisis that has been exacerbated by Biden's border policy, they're going to pay? This this is very upsetting to me. This is this is very Trumpian, I think, too. This idea of turning on one's own people because it, they made you look bad. I just I'm shocked by the tone that he took. And they have paid so far, by the way. Uh, the 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 border patrol agent captured in the pictures is is not working until until this is investigated. Investigating what? He was he was he was on horseback where he's supposed to be doing what he was supposed to be doing. That's, Using uh, his reins as one does on a horse. Yes, yeah. it, it, and by the way, you know, your, your, your Afghanistan point, you know, th- something this reminds me of is 
So when the picture first came out, Jen Psaki said, well, this is not this is not what the Biden Harris administration is. What the Biden Harris administration is, is partners with the Taliban. And people in the Biden Harris administration have praised the Taliban's methods of security. Okay, while attacking but not the very same people, but while the administration then attacks the, the U.S. Border Patrol for, for being on horseback. The Taliban, which recently uh, announced the return of the chopping off of hands as punishment, although they, you know, to protect the sensibilities of, I guess, the Biden-Harris administration, they've agreed perhaps they'll do that, that the chopping off in private so we don't have to witness it. Well, um, uh, the Afghanistan news does, does does continue, though nobody is paying any attention to it. Uh, yeah, they did announce that um, uh, g- girls are, uh, are are no longer being educated. Um, uh, there was a shootout in the presidential pa- palace between two rival leaders of the Taliban, and Haqqani apparently won the shootout, either killing or maiming the other guy, and the other guy. Uh, who was the sort of like the more moderate between them, apparently losing the shootout. Um, uh, these people are, um, are, are psychotic animals uh, as well as, you know, as well as fundamentalist uh, millenarian fanatics. And uh, uh, God knows what is to come. And, uh, and we are, you know, we are getting daily reports from what few reporters there are, who can manage to get information out about uh, torturing threats, uh, campaign of terror and all of that. And I guess we're just waiting for another shoe to drop in relation to, uh, you know, in relation to uh, one of the um, many Americans, though we don't know how many there are uh, still trapped. But it's a hundred. It's always a hundred, John. It's, it's always a hundred Americans. Okay. Yeah. Remember? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, So with that, Noah will be back on Monday. Uh, I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. And for Abe and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.